0: Solomon loved the view from this mountain in the evening. The sun was setting over Jerusalem, the royal city that over the years he had made famous. He could see his palace rooftop gleaming in the sunset and he admired his design he loved the way the compound seamlessly moved from the home to the library to the treasury, the armory, and all were linked together with porticos, gardens, and fountains. His eyes moved south outside the city walls to a smaller palace that he had built many years ago for the queen. He smiled to himself, remembering her as that young, beautiful princess of Egypt. He had courted her father's favor. He had courted the alliance politically and he had won her hand in marriage. He remembered when she first came to Jerusalem. She had surprised everyone with her intelligence and curiosity about everything. She was fascinated by his wisdom, fascinated by the stories of God appearing to him, not once but twice, And she especially wanted to learn about Torah and the temple. Who would have ever believed it, that the daughter of a pharaoh was now queen of Israel and that she would then surprise everyone by becoming a worshiper of the one true God. Like Solomon, that queen was old now, but he believed that he had aged better All of her surprises were long since used up with age, familiarity, and a fading beauty. He only had to see her at official functions now, once, maybe twice a year, and that was a relief. He couldn't stand her air of disdain for the younger wives he had added to the household. Her cold looks and cutting remarks were really unnecessary. He was fully aware of her disappointment in him. She didn't need to bring everybody else down. Only once had she dared to talk about God's commands, but he shut her down quickly. You see, she didn't understand the nuance of the scripture and that he was simply following royal precedent set by his own father. The son was almost gone now, and behind him, the rhythmic music began around the bonfire. As they began to turn away, his eyes paused on a smaller, unpretentious building just north of his palace. It was the temple, the house he had built for the name of the Lord. And for a brief moment, Solomon felt a tiny twinge of guilt. It was like Yahweh himself was staring back at him. But he quickly dismissed the feeling and he turned away. You see, the facts were simple. Solomon was the king and the king had needs. He wasn't hurting anyone else. He was following his heart and his famous curiosity. He still loved God after all and he was still grateful for God's wisdom and the blessing and the wealth that had followed. But there was still so much more to learn about the world, about other cultures and their beliefs and weren't we all just worshiping the same God? just in our own way. And what better way to learn than to worship with the exotic harem girls who were already swaying to the music. They had led him here tonight and they had promised him something new. And what followed was Solomon participating in an abomination to the Lord, idol, worship. How did he get here? How did the king fall so far? Well, that's the question that we're going to look at today. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. We've been promising the fall, and and it's all downhill from here. Uh, But before we go there, I just want to thank you for being here, and especially those that are worshiping with us in uh, Manistee. Appreciate Pastor Seth, who's holding down Fort God, our little outpost in Manistee. We love him. Let's give it up for, for Manistee. We love those guys. And also, they're worshiping today in Cadillac. So let's give it up for Cadillac as well. Pastor Isaac. Uh, pioneering something new, and uh, we'll see what God does with it. But uh, f- for all of us that are either worshiping at a location or you're worshiping online, uh, I want to warn you that today's message isn't easy because we're going to look at a man and we're going to look at his sin and how the one man's sin brought the downfall of the house of David. Now, just to put it in context, remember, this is the wisest man who ever lived, But we're going to watch how the wisest man who ever lived became the wisest fool to ever live. Because it's one thing for it to be up here. It's another thing to apply it. It's one thing to know it up here and even to speak it, but to live it. Not just one time, but for the rest of your life. Solomon started really, really, really well. Solomon his life ends in complete catastrophe. And it's a warning sign. You know, as I wrote that little piece to kind of start out the service, just to give us a context, I was very aware that the time and place that I was putting Solomon in my imagination was this exact same age that I am. Solomon dies at 60. And where the wheels came off is in his 50s. And, uh... It's a warning for us. So how did he get here? How did he fall? How did he, you know, another one bites the dust, so to speak. If you've been around the tabernacle for a while, you know, when we study the Old Testament, these heroes of our Sunday school class flannel boards, right? For those of you old enough to remember the flannel boards, um, the heroes of our veggie tales, right? The heroes that we learned about at VBS and whatever. When we dig deeper, we find out that they're all just as jacked up as we are. They're a complete mess, because there's only one worth emulating and following completely, and that's Jesus. So, in 1 Kings chapter 11, this is how Solomon got to this point. Verse one, it says, "'Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, "'along with the daughter of Pharaoh,' that was the queen, "'Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is God's word in in a way that only God's word does. It spells out exactly how he got here. And there's a lot packed into that but I need to explain to you where here is. Because it's easy to think that you're here. Well, I'm here, so I'm good. Well, don't be so fast. Let's look at where Solomon got to. It mentions four different names of idols, two of which are probably the same idol. Okay, so he mentions Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a sex goddess, the companion of Baal. Of Baal! And so we have Ashtoreth where he builds high places for her and that basically means up on a mountainside and it probably started as foreign wives or foreign concubines, hey, can I just worship God in my own way and him wanting to keep peace because there's not peace in a polygamous lifestyle. If you've ever watched Sister Wives, you know what I'm talking about, creepy, right? And so it starts with building a high place, meaning a place of worship for them within God's kingdom. And somewhere along the way, he participates as well, to what extent, we don't know. But not only Ashtoreth, but Milcom and Molech, who are the same thing. They're the same God, the abomination of the Ammonites, right? And so Molech, if if you've heard us talk about Molech before, this was an abomination because not only was it idol worship as part of their sacrificial ritual, at some point, were children offered in sacrifice to Molech. Babies, live babies. Scholars tell us that they would build bronze hands in some of their ceremonies. They would light a fire underneath these large bronze hands, heat them up to red hot, and they would throw live babies to Molech. Solomon is participating in that. And you say, oh, that's a freak of 2,000 years ago. No, it's not. The worship of Molech is legal in this country. Just has another form. And a high place for Shemash. How did he get here? How did the wisest man become the wisest fool? Because it's a warning for me. It's a warning for us. It's like I'm preaching to a mirror today. And so if we break it down, scripture tells us exactly how he got here. And it starts with love. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now it's interesting. If you want to nerd out with me for a minute, if you go back to chapter three of 1 Kings, Solomon started out really good. In in, in chapter three, verse three, it says, and King Solomon loved the Lord. He started out great. In his first vision with God, God's first appearing to him, God asked him, ask whatever you wish from me. And he asked rightly, he said, give me wisdom. He didn't say, give me money, sex, power. He said, give me wisdom. And God said, because you've asked for wisdom, I'm gonna bless you among or, or above any king that has ever been before. And he gave him all the things he didn't ask for, plus wisdom. And people came from far and wide. But it begins by saying King Solomon loved the Lord. Now we see King Solomon loved many foreign women. That's where his heart became divided. And he was commanded not to do this. The book of Deuteronomy said that the king should not take many wives. You know, people have asked me before, why is it that in the Old Testament we always see these heroes of the faith getting away with taking more than one wife? Like David, why didn't God uh, say not to do that? God did say not to do that. Has it ever stopped us before? Don't mistake the fact that it happened with God's approval. The Bible just gives you the unvarnished truth. And so he loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and, and we don't know, did she become a worshiper of Yahweh or not? I'd like to think maybe she did, but it, we have no clue. But it also says Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, and these are the nations that God said don't take a wife from those nations because they will turn your heart away from worshiping God to idols. Now, we gotta make a couple things clear because there's a bunch of applications. This has nothing to do with their race or their ethnicity. Some of us have maybe been raised in families where it was like, well, you can't marry outside your race. That is not biblical. That is not what God is saying. That's racism, is what that is. From the beginning of time, the races have intermixed. We all have the same DNA coming back to one man and one woman, go look it up or go visit the ark in Cincinnati. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. It's about the fact that they don't want them worshiping or or marrying people that worship false gods. In 2024, we do it all the time. But he's just so good looking. He's so nice. He's got a 401K. No, he doesn't believe in God, but that's the way he was raised. I'll change him. That's why we had to be reminded again in 2 Corinthians chapter six, that Christians are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we'll do it anyways, it happens all the time. And what, what is the result is usually a whole lot of heartache. Sometimes it turns out, but usually it doesn't. Eventually, she'll end up here alone with the kids while they'll listen to her and he's doing what he wants. Or vice versa, or vice versa. And so the whole point was Solomon's good. It wasn't to keep anything from him. But after taking Pharaoh's daughter as his queen, he just continued to add. I mean, he's the king. The king has needs, right? We're a nation of kings and queens. We do what we feel, we do what we want. This country has uh, uh, more power, more knowledge, more money. I mean, what we have available to us would make Solomon blush. And so when we think we deserve better, we do the same thing. It may not be women. It may not be multiple wives or multiple husbands. It may not be sex at all, but for Solomon it was. He says, they will turn away your heart after other gods. And then this is interesting. In in the last part of verse two, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. And there's this image of him clinging like he knew better. The wise part of him, the wisdom from God knew better, but he's clinging to the thing. Did a little study on on, on that word cling. Another translation of that is to hold fast to. He held fast to his addiction. He held fast to his fetish. He held fast to, to, to that thing that was dividing his heart from being truly devoted with all of his affection towards God. And it's easy to dismiss it and say, well, that's not my issue, it doesn't matter. Because the things that divide our hearts, they may not be Solomon's thing, but they're our thing. And we cling to these things. The Bible's very specific about what we're supposed to cling to or hold fast to. You can go on Bible Gateway or the Blue Letter Bible and just look up hold fast. I was gonna list them for you, but you're welcome, I decided just take my word for it. Over and over and over, it says hold fast to God. Hold fast to God, hold fast to his word. Those are the things we're supposed to cling to. The only other thing that's not God or his word that we're supposed to cling or hold fast to is our wife. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with her, and he will become one flesh. In the the King James, it says, and he will cleave or cling or hold fast to her, one wife for one life. Solomon is clinging to something different verse 3 he had 700 wives and 300 concubines and, and, and you know I could make some coax and jokes about 700 wives why would anyone want more than one right but that's an abomination I mean think about his attitude towards women they're here for my purpose and my pleasure And I'm sure he justified them. You know, kings would often um, marry a woman to have an alliance with a neighboring nation so that there wouldn't be warfare. And it was a common practice. If you marry my daughter, then we won't fight. 700 times, bro? I think it's beyond political alliances. I think it's full-on sex addiction. And then in verse four, it says, when Solomon was old... They turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true. Now I want to be careful here because the wickedness of the human heart, it's easy for us to say it's those wicked women. See, they turned his heart. Mm, No, the sin is Solomon's. I'm not going contrary to what God's word said. They had an influence. But Solomon knew better. God had appeared to him twice And both times said, if you will follow me with a whole heart, here's the blessing. But he blew it. He blew it. And in his old age, he was worn down and his curious mind, and let's just see. And don't all roads lead to heaven just like dogs? All dogs go to heaven, right? I don't know what it was, but, oh, they're just worshiping in their own way. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. You see, I don't see evidence that Solomon utterly rejected God. He defied God, he disobeyed God, but in the attitude of his heart, he didn't stop becoming a worshiper or stop being a worshiper of God. The lie that Solomon bought into is the same lie that we buy into, the same lie that I've bought into And the lie is that I can have God and add whatever my thing is to compete with him or to just be an addition to. So it's God plus. It's a God plus something. I'm gonna have God plus the best life that I'm gonna manufacture for myself. I'm gonna have God plus my secret sin. I'm gonna have God plus my addiction. I'm gonna have God plus doing things my own way. I'm gonna have God plus all these other gods that kinda fill in the gaps when I'm not having a worship service or it's not Sunday. It's the God plus lie. And so the lesson from Solomon's life, the one that I felt like I'm staring into a mirror about is this, God plus anything equals nothing. You can't add to God, you can't take away from God. God just is and he wants to be the one true God, the very first command, you will have no other gods before me but we add all these little other gods that we manufacture or think will bring us joy and satisfaction and we add them to God and we are left with nothing. Not because they're more powerful than God but it's because God said you will only have one God. You only worship the one true God. You will not make for yourself an idol. You will not profane my name by doing that. And all the other sins, refusing to rest, adultery, murder, coveting, you go right down the list. They all have to do with us saying, I'm gonna have God, and then I'm gonna add something to it. And this is the American dream. I mean, the American dream is, you know, you can pick and choose. You can be whatever you wanna be, young man. Go forth and conquer, right? Whatever you want to be, your house is your castle. Build your little kingdom. Find your best life now, right? And so what we do is we go, okay, I'm going to have an entree of what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to get a side dish of um, my hobby and, and where I spend all my money. Oh, can I have some deep fried God as an appetizer, And so God becomes this thing we just kind of add to our meal, and we want a la carte. And I feel like God's saying, I'm not on the menu. I'm not on your menu. Because God plus anything equals nothing. Solomon fell into the trap, you know, the three biggest temptations that'll sidetrack any of us. Money, power, and sex. Which sidebar, this is also what couples fight about in relationships money, power, and sex as broad categories, if you think about it. Now, Solomon's great wisdom led to the accumulation of a whole lot of wealth. We covered that last week. And wealth isn't bad, it's when wealth becomes a god that it becomes bad. And so, how much is enough? And how much keeping for yourself and making them into shields and putting them in your armor, how much is enough? Well, with money comes the second one, which is power. Because if you have money, you have options. Now, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't get to say, well, I don't make money a God. Because the fact of the matter is, is you can be a poor person and still not be generous, and you can still be greedy, and you can still be selfish. You know, that, uh, that, that way we... Express that, right? I don't have money. He has money. What's the attitude of my heart? Must be nice. Guess what? You just made money an idol. You made money an idol. So with all of his money, then comes power. And the great power that he has as king, where the world is his oyster, he can do whatever he wants. He has alliances. Who's going to tell him no with all that money and all that power? And so, what does he do? He feeds his lust for sex. I was talking to a friend this week, and and I, I don't even know who he quoted, but the quote hasn't left my mind. He said, God disappears in lust filled eyes. God disappears in lust filled eyes. And the wisest man who ever lived became a fool. He started great. He ended with nothing. This is the beginning of the fall of the house of David. Now, the Bible just gives us enough. And and by the way, um, the Bible is rated R. But it's not here to give us all the juicy details. Did Solomon have a comeback? I don't know. I don't know. I know that God's promises are eternal and he made some promises about Solomon. But we get a little clue because you know Solomon wrote many things. He wrote many of the Proverbs. Some of them he accumulated from other sources of wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs is. He wrote the Song of Solomon, which is a very NC-17 rated book of the Bible, as any young 12-year-old boy who has one will tell you. You didn't read it when you were 12? (laughs) But he also wrote a book called The Book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a wisdom book. In fact, if if you have a Bible or flat screen, and we'll turn there with me, um, I'd like to think, and I don't know this for sure, but we believe that Solomon wrote this book because he calls himself the teacher at the beginning. In in some translation, he calls himself, thus saith the preacher. And I'd like to think that maybe Ecclesiastes was a deathbed confessional. Solomon died at about age 60, and it's possible that after experiencing a great start, being turned away, having his heart not being wholly true towards God, that maybe on his deathbed, he said, I gotta write one more thing so people will know. And, And so if this is the wisest man that ever lived who became a fool, I wanna pay attention. If it can happen to him, it can happen to me. If it can happen to him, it can happen to us. Any one of us. And so in Ecclesiastes, and and I don't want to read the whole thing, but this is that book of the Bible where it starts out with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And, And he talks about how I chase after science, I chased after building, I chased after power, I chased after stuff. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is vanity, depending on the translation. Vanity is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It's a very uplifting book. It's very encouraging, very like if you're down in the dumps, go to Ecclesiastes, right? Find the richest man, the most powerful man that ever lived, and he'll, he'll tell you how it comes out. But here's just a couple clues. I want to take you first to chapter two, then we'll look at chapter 12. In chapter two, verse eight, Solomon writes this, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Sounds like Solomon, right? Yes, Okay, two of you. All right, good. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And he goes on to say, I denied myself nothing. All the things I could have, I went after. And then just a few chapters later, after the meaningless, meaningless, the chasing after the wind, you get to the end of his sermon, the end of the book, chapter 12, the last, or second to last verse. He writes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is a man who tried everything. Later today, some of us, very few of us, because nobody cares about the rematch of these two teams because the Lions are out. But we're going to watch millionaires fight it out in front of thousands. And we'll wonder, man, it'd be so cool to be that quarterback or that guy or or whatever. And, you know, we spend our lives wondering about the what ifs. Here's a guy who surpassed all of them. He tried everything. And on his deathbed, he says, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. You could almost put a postscript, because I didn't. I didn't. We need a better king than Solomon. He joins a long line of human beings that were born into sin, just like I was, and just like every single one of us have been. There's only one who was not born with sin, and he's the better king, the king of kings. His name is Jesus. And so Solomon's downfall points to the fact we need a better king because we know the gospel. We know that God sent the better king, the best king. He sent the sinless one. The one who had access to the same things that Solomon did, and yet his heart stayed wholly true. And this is critical that his heart stayed wholly true. If you go over to Luke chapter 4, we go to the temptation of Christ. And and just to put it in context, uh, very early in Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, not just three times. We get three instances. He was tempted the entire 40 days. So you don't get to say, well, it must have been nice for Jesus. He was perfect. Yeah, he still had to withstand temptation. And he did. And he did it perfectly. He's fasting and it turned these stones to bread. And he did not because it wasn't the will of God. He could have, he didn't. The second temptation is the temptation of Solomon. All of these kingdoms will bow at your feet. I'll give you everything this world has to offer, Jesus. This is what Satan is saying. Choose this earthly kingdom right now. And you just have to add a little bit of worship. Just add a little bit of worship of me. Jesus' response in verse eight, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Him only shall you serve. Another way that you could put that, you shall hold fast to the Lord your God and to him only shall you cling. What are you clinging to? What am I clinging to? It's easy to cling to good things, but when we cling to good things instead of God, those good things become God things, and then we find ourselves at the feet of Ashtoreth, or Molech, or Shemash, participating in things we never thought we would. Jesus is the better king. And if you go to one more place, into 1 John, 1 John chapter two, It's all the way near the back of the book, right before Revelation. God's word commands us this way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we're commanded to not love the world. We're commanded to hold fast to God and serve him only. Now, what is it saying right there? It's not saying that you can't love people. It's not saying to not love your spouse or to love your children or your grandchildren. It's not saying to love the blessings that God pours into our lives. It's okay to love your job or your vocation because you feel like, man, this is what I was made to do. That's how I feel. I love my job. But what God's word is saying is that shouldn't replace or compete with the ultimate love that you have for me. Some of us are in love with our identity or in love with the way we look. Even if we don't like the way we look, we sure are in love with it because it's the passion of our heart. Some of us are in love with wellness and and being healthy, and, and, and that has replaced our affection for God. First thing in the morning, we're thinking about what's got gluten and what doesn't have gluten and what has an essential oil in it that I can rub on me. I'm not saying those things are bad, but what is the ultimate affection of our heart? I can do the same thing with ministry. The next campus, the next big thing. What do people think? We gotta grow the tab, you know, build our little kingdom. No, that's a horrible God. For some of us, our love for the world is translate, well, it's our kids, and you know, the Lord gave me these kids, and as I said before, kids make really crappy gods. When they're little, they poop their pants, when they're old, they leave. And you're left with nothing. And so the, the, the message is simple. God plus anything as the desire of your heart, your ultimate affection, your greatest treasure will leave you with nothing. If it can be lost, stolen, taken, destroyed, it'll let you down. Solomon tried. Solomon made a good college try. Pfft. He went way past David And isn't it interesting, It said in there, if you remember the first Kings passage, that Solomon's heart wasn't wholly true like David's. Well, there's a difference. Because if you remember, David fell spectacularly too. But the way they recovered was different and here's where there's hope. So if you wanna nerd out here, David's, failure, his adultery with Bathsheba, and then covering up of that adultery with murder happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Solomon, where the wheels come off in our reading, happens in 1 Kings chapter 11. You think God's trying to show us something? And why did he reference David? When David's sin was spectacularly brought to light, when the prophet Nathan confronted him and said, you are the man. How did David respond? With confession, with repentance, in dust and ashes. Read Psalm 51. And when the child that was born to his now wife, who he's had her, uh, her husband murdered, the child he had with Bathsheba, he was told that child will die and he got on his face and begged God for the life of the child. Please don't let my sins impact my child. The child died anyways. How did David respond? It says that he got up, he washed himself, he put on clean clothes, and he went to the temple and he worshiped. That's the difference. We don't know if Solomon recovered because he was clinging on, hanging on to that sin. He didn't utterly reject God. He just wanted to add some exotic women. I'm the king, the king has needs. He wanted to add his power and his wealth. I'm kind of above it all. I'm the queen and the queen has needs. What are you holding fast to? What are you clinging to? If it's anything besides God and God alone, you have a divided heart. And God wants hearts that are wholly committed to him. Proverbs 4 says that we're to guard our hearts with all diligence. In the the ESV, it says to keep your heart with all vigilance. But it's the same thing. In your heart, it's saying to people that call themselves worshipers of God, like Solomon, guard your heart. Keep watch over your heart. It's easy for those good things to sneak in. And the little course changes over time completely change the trajectory of where you thought you were headed. I mean, it's it's a simple analogy. I don't know if you can see my hands, but I want to go there. You know, I'm thinking about the old gospel songs. I'm on a highway to heaven. I'm on the gospel road, da-da-da-da-da. Sorry, that's my Christian ghetto background, you know. But what happens if those things come into your heart, those little diversions, it gives you a little, just a little compass switch, just a couple degrees this way. And you don't even notice, and people around you don't even notice. But over time, where you thought you were going this way, just that little direction, and all of a sudden, you find yourself at a high place, worshiping an idol, instead of where God told you to stay. There's a reason, Jesus said, the road is narrow. And few find it, few find it, because what we want to do is we want to have God and we want to have our cake too. We want a little bit of God, add him to the menu. A little bit on Sunday, a little pick-me-up. We don't want holy, committed hearts. What we end up doing is we end up following our heart, right? That's the wisdom of the world, that you should follow your heart, Should I marry this girl? Well, hey, follow your heart. Should I spend this money? Hey, follow your heart. Should I quit this job and go this way? Should I change? Hey, follow your heart, man. That's the worst advice you could ever get. For the love of God, stop following your hearts. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful among all things, above all things. My heart, your heart, our hearts. We don't follow our hearts We follow God's word, we follow God's word. You know, I saw saw this great meme just this morning and I thought about putting it up on the slide and and, uh, this is why we follow God's word and not our hearts. The meme said, uh, um, you know what God left out of the Bible? Your opinion. (laughs) Because he's a for real God, he's a for real God. Solomon started really well. He's gonna finish in disaster. Next week, we'll look at the consequences of his sin. But I'm reminded what Paul said to Timothy, that he should fight the good fight of the faith. And then in 2 Timothy, as he was nearing his own death, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As I grow older, I'm I'm thinking to myself, man, I wanna finish well. I think God wants us to finish well. Undivided hearts that treasure Christ above all things. The son who God sent into the earth to be a sacrifice for us, that that he knew that I wouldn't obey perfectly. But because Jesus did, the pressure's off me now. That's why we say trust Christ, worship Christ, receive Christ, Jesus save me. He's the only one who can because I can't save me. I can't save you. I can't save myself. How could I save anyone else? Only Jesus can save. That's what he did on the cross. By his blood, he paid for our sins. By his sacrifice, he offered what I couldn't. He lived the perfect life, died a horrible death, defeated Satan's sin and death by raising from the grave. He ascended and he sits on the throne at the right hand of God himself and one day he'll come back and will, he, will we hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. We'll never, we'll never be as perfect as Jesus, but that's okay. If we know him, if he's our God, if he's our king, if to him we cling, if we hold fast to Jesus, Christ alone, That's the test, that's the test. So uh, the bands are gonna come in Cadillac, Manistee, and in Buckley. I'm gonna invite all of us, can we just bow our heads together? Take a moment, I've said enough. What is God saying to you? What are you holding fast to? What are you clinging to? If it's anything other than Christ alone, if one hand you've got God and another hand you're clinging on to something else, you've got some business to do with him today. We confess that sin to God and say, God, it's you and you alone. Make my affections for you and you alone. Make my greatest treasure you and you alone, knowing you and you alone. My worship, my purpose, my meaning is found in Christ. And I'll leave the results up to you. That's for all of us. If you're a Christian, it's a heart check and it's a time for repentance. If you're not a Christian, it's an invitation. If you're not a Christian, you can become one. The, the simplest prayer would be Jesus save me and you can become a Christian today. And you can run on for a long time trying to fill your heart with other things and looking for the ultimate satisfaction there unless it's God alone. If it's God plus anything else, it'll equal nothing. Nothing. Father God, I thank you again for your word. I praise you for the truth. I praise you for trusting us with all of the gory details. God, we repent again of chasing after lesser things. God, I ask that you would give me a heart that is wholly committed to you. God, I ask that you would give us hearts wholly committed to you, that we would be a church that is single-minded. God, would you help us yield to your will and your way? And God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that this would be the day that they would surrender and give you their yes. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.